Please turn with me to the book of Judges. I'll be reading excerpts from chapters 10 and 11. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. 10 verses 6 to 8. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They, suffered, they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. 10 verses 13 to 16. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. 11 verses 29 to 39. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Eroer to the vicinity of Manith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus, Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzvah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. This is the word of God. It's weird getting together in the uh, afternoon, isn't it? <clears throat> um, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's a pretty depressing passage we're going to be uh, going through today. Um, I bear no good news. No, I, I, there's lots of good news in here. Um, in ancient times, God's people, Israel, was surrounded by enemies. And so when Israel was under political turmoil, who protected them? This is before they had any kings. Who, who redeemed Israel? God raised a judge. A judge was a military leader that delivered the Israelites often from captivity. And so throughout the book of the Judges, there is this cycle that you see, and it happens over and over. God's people, they fall into sin, and they fall into idolatry. It leads to a period of captivity, which then leads to, it's followed by a period of repentance and prayer. 
and then that leads to the rising of a judge and salvation. Cyclically, it mimics our spiritual lives in many ways. We're going to do three things today. We're going to walk through this passage uh, again, and then I'm going to give you some base lessons, foundational lessons about sin and some foundational lessons about grace, the grace of God. Uh, we're going to walk through the passage, and then we're going to talk about some, some lessons about sin and some lessons about God's grace. First, we're going to look at this passage. In chapter 10, verse 6, it begins with the word, again. That means that there's this destructive pattern of sin that's taking place. Israel, what they did was, the Israelites, they adopted the gods of their neighbors, the neighboring countries. The text says that the Israelites had forsaken, they forsook the Lord. In other words, they forgot God. The text doesn't say that they forgot about God. It says that they forgot God. In other words, not, it's not that the Israelites stopped believing who God is. It's not that they stopped gathering to worship. It's not that they stopped serving uh, uh, the, the courts. What it means is that God's promises, God's love, God's lordship, God's power, it stopped shaping them. It stopped shaping them. It stopped shaping their decisions because they were controlled already by something other than God. And so in verse 6, the text says, they no longer serve God. And so in verse 7, what does God do? He sells them into the hands of their enemies, the Philistines and the Ammonites. And for 18 years, they are oppressed. Verse 10, they cry out to God. They cry out to God. And God, he doesn't immediately respond. In verse 14, he says, well, go cry out to your gods. Right? You're so taken by your gods. Why don't you go cry out to them? Why don't you go ask them for help from all of your trouble? Let your God save you from your trouble. But then in verses 15 and 16, there's genuine repentance. They say, we've sinned. Do with us whatever it is that you want. Just rescue us. Essentially, rescue us from our sin. And what you see is right after that, they got rid of their idols. They got rid of their idols. They served the Lord. Now, there are people in this room, inevitably, they're going to say, well, let me get this straight. If God is a God of love, if he really is a God of love, why doesn't he just let them go? Why doesn't he just forgive them? Now, think about this. If you've ever been deeply hurt by anybody, you've ever been betrayed by somebody, you know, and we're all old enough here to have experienced hurt in our lives, you know, you can't, you don't just let it go. You can't just forgive them. Why? Because the hurt that you experience is proportional to the degree that you actually love that person. And so your anger towards that person is proportional to the degree of betrayal that you've experienced. In other words, it's like they owe you. They owe you a sin debt. Somebody has to pay that debt off. So either the person who sinned against you has to pay, or uh, if you let them go, then you're going to pay that debt. You're going to pay that debt. You're going to observe, absorb that hurt. You're going to absorb the pain. Every single time you feel like they deserve to get just the punch in the mouth, you hold back, and that hurts you actually in some cases even more. And if that's how it is between human finite beings, how much more? For a God with infinite love, who has been betrayed infinitely by his people. And so God, we say that, how do you reconcile God who is a God of anger and God who is a God of love? God is a God of anger, not despite the fact that he's a God of love, but because he's a God of love. That anger is proportional to the betrayal. The anger is proportional to his love. But look at the compassion of God. 
In verse 16, he sees the misery of his people and he couldn't bear it. And so God raises a leader. He raises uh, a judge. And in Judges chapter 11, we are introduced to a man named Jephthah. Jephthah is an unlikely leader. Why? Because he had a terrible pedigree, a poor pedigree. In ancient times, it wasn't your job to find you. It wasn't your salary that defined you. It wasn't your educational degrees that defined you. It was your family that defined you. It was who, who your father was and what his name was. It was who your mom is and what her name was, what they, what they were, how, how they raised their family. In Chapter 11, verse 1, we find Jephthah's mother was a prostitute. And so it was such a disgrace that he was kicked out of his family, his own half-brothers and sisters, their family. They kicked him out, in a sense, because of his pedigree, and he eventually formed a gang. He eventually formed a gang. And so his life was filled with crime. It was filled with violence. But through that, he became a great warrior. And clearly he became a great leader among these outlaws. So while everybody else is looking around for a leader with the right credentials and the right externals to lead them, here was Jephthah being raised by God. God was incubating Jephthah. God was building Jephthah to become a savior. Now, because of his wartime strategy, because of his skill sets, the people, they finally realize this. They go to Jephthah and they say in chapter chapter 11, verse 6, lead us. But Jephthah is very wise. He responds the way that God actually does earlier. The people go to God and they say, save us. And he says, well, why don't you cry out to your gods? They go to Jephthah. They say, save us, lead us. Essentially what he says is, well, before you rejected me, why do you come to me now? So you see in Jephthah, he's a warrior. He's a strategist. He's a negotiator. But he's also a prophet. He represents God. He's almost channeling the same words. And he acts like an advocate for the Israelites. In verses 13 to 27, he doesn't go right into battle. He writes the king. He writes them a letter. And and, and what he does is he wants to refute the king's claim on Israel's land. That's what he's going after. And he says basically, one, historically, Israel won the land. He won the land by conquest from, uh, Israel won the land from, uh, by conquest from the Amorites and the Moabites. It never belonged to you in the first place. It was never yours. That's what he says. And so conclusively, the second thing, verses 23 to 24, the Lord gave this land to us. It has been ours. And he says that in verses 25 to 27, we have been here for 300 years. Why are you coming after us now? Why are you coming now? It's because you are unjust, he says. This is a power grab. If you look at Jephthah, God has raised this skillful judge in the midst of all the brokenness in his family, rejected by his own. And now the Ammonites, they receive this letter, they reject everything. They reject it all. And so in verse 29, they go to war. The Spirit of God came upon Jephthah, and that, what that means is now he's bolder. He is more courageous. He, is a, he has a sense of calling, and, and, and it means that his faith has led him to be bolder, uh, given him a sense of calling. And so he advances against the Ammonites, but he first makes a vow to God. It's a tragic vow. Verse 31, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return from battle will belong to God. I will sacrifice that person. And scholars say he's not talking about a pet. He's not talking about an animal. He's very, very clear. He's, it's very clear he's talking about a human sacrifice, which the Lord detests. If you read Deuteronomy, uh, the earlier chapters of Deuteronomy, it is clear the Lord de- detests this. But Jephthah, he subdues his enemies. He is a hero. 
And upon returning home, who comes to the door? It's his daughter. And remarkably, his daughter says, you got to keep this vow. you got to keep this vow. And so Jephthah sacrifices his only child. It's a tragic passage. What do we learn from it? There are five lessons on sin today, five lessons on grace, the grace of God. We're going to walk through them very quickly. First, the lessons about sin. Verse, the first one, verse 6, again. The Israelites, they believed in God. They worshiped God. They gave. They sacrificed. Not too different from any of us here. We serve. We attend church. Plugged into community, maybe. We worship. How did this happen? How did they get enslaved? 18 years? What that means is, and this chapter tells us, that it's possible to call yourself a Christian, to serve actively in the church, to be consistent on Sundays, to attend community groups, to, to be a part of outreach, and yet still be far from God. Because even though you're part of the church, what really moves you, what really shapes you, is what all your neighbors value. It's what they want. It's their idols. Real faith rejects the voices and the values of everyone else that's around you, saying that we should be pursuing wealth and status. Oh, it's your family. You should be deeply rooted in family. That should be the most important thing in your life, more important than anything else in your life. Real faith rejects those voices and images and values and embraces God's voice, embraces his word. God's voice, his word is preeminent in their lives. He is king over all things. It is, a, it is very difficult in a democratic society to understand what a kingdom is. To let go of things that you value because the king condemns those things. Instead, what we've done is we've rejected the word of God and we've embraced the images and the voices of everything else that's apart from God over and over and over and over again. And we only come back when we get in trouble. That's the cycle, you see. That's the cycle, the word again. It's called idolatry. The second thing, the second lesson on sin, idolatry always, always leads to slavery. Every time that Israel worshipped the idols of a neighboring nation, that nation would end up overpowering them and oppressing them and enslaving them. Chapter 10, verse 6, they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and Sidon and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines. Remember, the Israelites, they took over the land of Canaan and the, ba the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and, the, and they were the, they were the uh, gods of the native Canaanites. And so then you have the gods of Aram and, and Sidon and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines. Well, Aram was, the, was, the, was the, the people of the northwest. They're the gods of the northwest. Sidon were the gods of the north. Uh, the Ammonites and the, Moab, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they were the gods of the east. The Philistines, the gods of the south. Othniel, he was a judge that was raised up in chapter 3 to rescue the Israelites from Aram. Ehud, which we just heard last week, he rescued the Israelites from the Ammonites and the Moabites in chapter 3. Shamgar was a judge that was raised up in chapter 3 to rescue the Israelites from the Philistines. Deborah was a judge that was raised up, unlikely hero, she was a woman, 
right, raised up to defeat the Canaanites. And now we're back. They're right back. Over and over and over again. Why? You know why? Because just like the north and the south and the east and the west, we are surrounded every day by voices and images of idolatry that are telling us, this is the way you got to go to get there. This is the way you got to go to make it. Over and over again, you are inundated 24-7. Your friends are saying this to you. People even in the church are saying this to you. Your family is saying it to you. TV is saying it to you. Nowadays, we carry all that on our phones. It is in your life, all your life, every day, all the time. We are surrounded by idols. Every time you look around at somebody and you look at their success or their careers or their titles or their wealth, their retirement portfolio, their status and their education, their degrees and their pedigrees and their homes and the neighborhoods and the schools that they're sending their kids to and their, and their looks and their figure and their physique. And you say, that's what I need. I need that in order to experience a sense of worth for me. And that becomes more important than God. None of those things, by the way, are bad things. None of those things are bad things. Inherently, none of those things. Family. Family is a good thing. Wealth is, to have wealth is a great thing. But when we say that we need those things to gain a sense of worth, and that becomes more important than your relationship with God, that's idolatry. And it's enslaving. You know why it's enslaving? Because you have to work and work and work to maintain, sustain, acquire. We're constantly giving our lives over to to something apart from God. And we do it emotionally, which is why we feel anxiety. We do it psychologically, which is why we get depressed. We do it physically, which is why we're overworking constantly. We do it relationally, which is why it affects your family. It affects your relationships, your friendships. The Bible says whenever, whenever something else becomes more important than your relationship with God, It's going to demand everything you've got. It starts and says, well, the cost is minimal. But then it takes more, and it takes more, and it takes more. Eventually, you feel justified. You have to have it. Eventually, you've poured too much into it. You have to have it. It's going to demand everything. It's going to cost you everything. And what that means is when it costs you, it's oppressive. It overpowers you. It controls you. Why? Because you've forgotten about God. And you've forgotten God. Now, I didn't, I said forgotten. It's it's not that you've forgotten about God. You've forgotten God. You go to church. You're here. You're here right now. You didn't forget about God. But God and that relationship that you have, that intimacy that you have with God has been pushed to the periphery of your life. It's been pushed to the fringes of your life. Where does God rank? Where does God in your relationship with God rank in your life decisions? Does he even factor into your life decisions? But the interesting thing is that although idolatry leads to slavery, here's the third thing, slavery also leads to greater idolatry. Look at the book of Judges. Over and over, the Israelites, they're enslaved. What, do they learn? They're miserable. Do they learn? 18 years they are enslaved. Did they learn? They just go right back to their idols. That's why Judges isn't only 11 chapters long. It keeps going. Why? Because over and over, sin is a way of saying, I know I'm wrong. 
I know I was wrong. I got it now. I get it. Nothing's going to fill my soul but my relationship with God. Nothing's going nothing's to satisfy me like God, but I need this. Actually, what we really say is, this time I get it. I was a fool then. I'm wiser now. I, I, you know, I got it down this time around. I'm going to do relationships differently. I'm going to do this job differently. I'm going to be different this time around. And yet we fall right back again. That's the power of idolatry. Look, you look back on yourself and you say, my last relationship, I was foolish. And you're about to get into another relationship. Look, I'm going to cut to the chase. Just think five years ahead from now. You're going to think five years back and you say, I was foolish. We fall right back again. Regardless what other people around you say, we still, we still are convinced that it's a relationship issue or a skill issue. I just need to do this better. It's a, it's a, a money issue or it's a, it's a wisdom issue. I just needed to have this bit of wisdom, but I have it now. It's not that. It's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. Regardless of the damage, we still cling to our idols. Now, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Joseph Stalin, this is anecdotal. Joseph, Joseph Stalin, great, um, when I say great, he was one of the largest presences in the early Soviet Union empire in the, in the you know, post-1920s era of the Soviet Union. And uh, a man walked up to Joseph Stalin and he said, you know, you're such a tyrant, a tyrannical dictator. Do you think that will keep people clinging to you? Because if you're tyrannical, if you press don't you think they'll eventually just run from you? Don't you think that they'll stop embracing you and, and either flee the country or maybe turn around and go against you? And he says, let me show you something. And he picks up this chicken. I don't know, I guess they were in some farm and chickens just running around. He picks up this chicken and he starts tearing the feathers off the chicken. And this guy is horrified at this image of this dictator just ripping this, 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 the feathers off of this chicken. And he lets the chicken go and the chicken ironically, starts to come up to him shivering and clings to his leg. He says, if that's how you treat the people, they will stay with you. Keep them poor. Keep them broken. Ruin them. They will stay with you. Friends, that's the power of sin. We will subject ourselves to all sorts of things because of a promise of what sin, the idolatry, those idols, the things that we say are going to make us. We cling to these things, and what happens, it eventually, it's just tearing away. It's consuming us. And yet, we stay with it. We find new ways to stay with it. That's not a wisdom issue. That's not a, a uh, relationship issue. That's a worship issue, regardless of the damage. So in chapter 10, verse 7, when, God, when the text says that God sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, think about it. When you sell something to somebody, that means that the new owner will, can have his way with it. That's what it means. Look, you, you have a car. It's beautiful. You've taken immaculate care of this car. And now after about seven or eight years, it's a good time in the market. You say, you know what? I'm going to sell this car. I can make good money from this car right now. And you sell it to a guy and he pays you top dollar for it. You got a good deal. 
He's going to take that car and let's say he just runs it into walls and, and over cliffs and stuff like that. And you can't, you're going to be like, yo, that's my car. You can't. You sold it over. You see? So the image, it doesn't mean that God has left his presence. But it's as if, it's a metaphor, it's as if he had let for a time being for these new owners to have their way with his people. Why do you use the word sell? It's because we were created in the image of God. We were made to reflect the character of God, his love, his joy, his creativity, his wisdom, his sense of justice. We are made to reflect the image of whatever it is that we worship. So if your heart is relationally far from God and wealth and power become your idols, wealth and power will rule your heart, your affections, your loves. It will rule your mind, your thoughts, your dreams. It will rule your will, your decisions, what you do. And because wealth and power own you, you are sold to it, what happens is you're going to start to reflect the character of wealth and the character of power. You will lie if that means preserving your power or your wealth. You will cheat if that means preserving your wealth or your power. You will sacrifice things. You will sacrifice your body. You will overwork if that means you can preserve and sustain your wealth and your power. You will sacrifice your family. Your children need you, and yet you will sacrifice your family if that means for a time being, you say, it's I'm doing this for you, you say. I'm doing this for us, you say. I'm doing this just for a little while, you say. You're not doing that for any of those things. You're serving your God. And you will justify it. So you become greedy. You become stingy. You will judge people based on their credentials, based on their earning power. You will look up or down at people and yet, all the, all the while, wealth becomes a source of anxiety for you. Wealth becomes a source of depression for you. You are angry because of wealth and power. You are sad because of wealth and power. In 1929, in 1973, in 1987, in 2008, people jumped off bridges. People jumped off buildings because of wealth and power. They literally hit rock bottom because they were reflecting the image of empty gods now when rock bottom hits fourth by this point you've done everything on your own to save yourself you're panicking and it's broken everything's lost so now you're helpless sin begins inward and renders it you helpless outward what do you do now we go to god Help us. Help me. I was wrong. And God doesn't always answer our prayers. He doesn't always answer our prayers. Why? Because he knows. We're going to God for things. We're not going to God for God. We're going to God for relief. We're not going to God for God. We're going to God to save us from my trouble. We're not going to God for God. He is our help. He doesn't just help us. He's not a bellhop. He's not a plumber. He is our help. He is our refuge. We want relief from the trouble. 
we don't want rescue from sin. Because if we want to rescue from sin, the trouble will be negotiable. Relief from the trouble will be negotiable. But in verse 10 of chapter 10, they wanted relief from the trouble and God, the rescue from sin, that was negotiable. And God knew. He says, well, watch crowd to your gods then. If, you, if help is what you want, let them save you. Are you willing? And look, I don't want to denigrate some of the stuff that we all go through. Everybody here, I mean, I can say this as a pastor because, look, we're all sinners, and I know we're all sufferers. The Bible says that. So we're all suffering in some way, shape, or form. It could be something like an exam on Monday. It could be something like the trial of your life. We're all suffering. Are you willing to accept the consequences of sin, your sin, and go to God as your rescue from the power of your sin? By the way, I mean, here's a practical thing. You got to be careful about what you say. You got to be careful about what we promise. I mean, if you speak out of greed, it's because you've been shaped by greed. If you speak out of anger, you're going to be personally bound to your anger. And you're going to speak out of it. The Bible says out of the overflow of your heart, what you worship, what owns you, your mouth will speak. Right? So even Jephthah, he speaks out of violence. That's all he knew. That's all he grew up with. He speaks with violence, and that violence ends up. I mean, that's what goes outward. That's what ends up ruling him. That's what ends up consuming him and eating him alive. You see that? So the most important question we need to ask ourselves, what rules the heart? When you hit rock bottom, before you go to God, to just help you from the trouble, what is ruling your heart? Lastly, fifth lesson about sin. Sin is designed to consume you. It's designed to ruin you. If you look at Jephthah, he grew up in violence. He's so given to violence. He's so given to bloodshed. Even after victory, when peace should be settling into his life, in a sense, the violence actually chased him. It followed him. It was his own words. It caught up to him. It got into his heart and caught up to him. That's what happened. Jephthah was so influenced by his world around him. He was so influenced by a culture of, blind, of, of, of violence that it blinded him. And so what happens is that same violence that gave him victory ended up consuming him, eating him alive, swallowing his life. When I say that, it swallowed his daughter's life. But in those ancient times, your children were your life. And he didn't have any other children. He didn't have any other sons. He didn't have any other daughters. This was it. He lost his one. And the Bible consistently says, and she was never married, and she was a virgin. Why? It's to emphasize he had no other children, no other descendants. It ended with him because of his vow. The, the violence that was in his heart just came out. That's what he owned, and it ultimately owned him and could swallowed him. If violence is an idol, I mean, you're so obsessed with winning, by the way, that's like being violent, right? I mean, if you're so obsessed with winning, you will step over everyone. That's bloodshed. I mean, today, no one here is going to pull out a sword, right? But we use our minds. We're crafty people. Everyone here is educated. Very, very hard workers here in this room. And 
we're going to step over anyone that we can to get ahead. We're so obsessed with winning. Are you willing to lose? Well, before we can go there, we're so obsessed with winning. We're actually willing to put everything on the line, including our, our relationships, all the things that are important. Why? Because of the things that are urgent in our lives, that desire, that desperation to get ahead. Jephthah's daughter was an only child. To lose your child is like losing your own life. I mean, if you're a father, you understand. When your child gets sick, you would do anything to take the place of your child, even in sickness. You never get over. They say you never get over the loss of a child. That intimacy, that person's a part of you. It's like losing a big part of who you are, right? Jephthah's life, that violence just consumes him, consumes his life. He'll never be the same. When you've given too much to the world around you, when you give too much to the culture around you, when you give too much to the values of your neighbors around you, it's going to distort your view of God. You're going to, you're going to cling to it, and, and, and you're, it's going to distort your view of God. It's going to distort your view of your calling. Think about what society says about sex and about wealth and about power, about beauty today, about family today. Have you let that influence your decisions? Then it's gotten into you. Have you let that influence your promises in life? Then it's gotten into you. Have you let that influence your goals in life? Then it's gotten into you. It's, it's gotten into you. It's already working. That's always going to, what makes you anxious? What brings depression to you? What brings you despair? What's, what is that one thing in your life where you say, man, if I don't have this, I am ruined. It always leads to overwork. Because the idols of our culture have gotten into you. The narrative of Jephthah, it's a sad narrative. It teaches us to ask ourselves, what spiritual blind spots, as a person in the church, even in the church, what spiritual blind spots exist in my life that distort my view of reality and my view of God, my view of myself, my life? Now, the very nature of a blind spot is that you can't see it. So what do you need? You need friends, gospel community, somebody who's willing to stick their neck out on the line and say, even maybe even risk their relationship with you to tell you, you got a problem. Who's surrounded, who do you surround yourself with? Is it more of what the culture says we need to surround ourselves with? Jephthah is a warrior. He was surrounded by outlaws. What about you? Now, we're going to get into some lessons about salvation. It doesn't take away from the fact that this is a tragic narrative. But there's some incredible lessons about God's grace in this passage. One, God is in every victory. Every victory that you experience is by the sheer, the sheer grace of God. Grace alone. Jephthah, he didn't see that God called him. He didn't need to make a vow for victory. God called him. That was enough. It should have ended right there. God raised him. God gave him these gifts. It was a rough life, but God used that rough life, worked through that rough life, and gave him great gifts. So why did he go through with the vow? It's because he didn't trust that every victory is by grace alone. What about you? Every time you sacrifice 
your family or your relationships, what's important over the things that seem urgent right now, that's a failure to trust in the grace of God. Who gave you your gifts? Who gave you your wealth? Well, I'm a pretty smart guy. I got this job. Who gave you that job? Well, I mean, I had a good interview. Who gave you that interview? Who gave you that voice to speak so eloquently when you do in those interviews? Who gave you that opportunity? You think that you were that much better than the next guy that interviewed? Trust me, I was the interviewer. You're not that much better. We're not that much better. And yet, we work and work and work over the things that are urgent in our lives, not nurturing and cultivating the things that are important in our lives. It's a failure to trust in the grace of God. It's a failure to trust in our calling. Trust his word. Trust his grace. Secondly, who gets to receive the grace of God? God offers grace to people who, who don't deserve it, who don't appreciate it, who aren't even looking for it at times, who are oftentimes running from him even after they've received his grace. Look at the Israelites. Did they deserve rescue? Jephthah, did he deserve victory? No. Everything that we receive, even if it's through your gifts, it's purely and entirely by the grace of God. The prerequisite to receiving the grace of God is what? Recognizing that we don't deserve it. Recognizing that we are helpless. Recognizing that no matter how gifted you may be, every victory is by his grace. You're putting yourself in a position to receive, to be overwhelmed, surprised by God's grace. Thirdly, what that means is because of our blind spots, because of our brokenness, because of our idols, there's this great need for renewal. And God has made a, a way to make that renewal real. It's called repentance. We're going to briefly walk through the components. Chapter 11, verse 15. The Israelites said, we, are, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best. Please rescue us. One, we have sinned. It's not a miscommunication. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not just a lack of judgment. It's not just a mistake. We have sinned. Can you own that? Two, do with us whatever you think is best. In other words, the circumstances and the trouble, I'm now saying I'm negoti that's negotiable. I may or may not. Siri is talking to you. That's not the voice of God. I'm kidding. I, um, he's saying, do with us whatever you think is best. The trouble is negotiable. The trouble is negotiable. Just let us be near you again. Thirdly, then rescue us. Not rescue us from the calamity. Not rescue us from the devastation. Rescue us from our sin. You know how you know that? The next verse they got rid of their idols. They're saying, I want to be restored to you. That's more important than being rescued from my trouble. I want to be rescued from my sin. Now I realize I hated your word. I didn't hate my sin. It's more important than being rescued from my suffering. Yes, the suffering is sad, but it's more sad to go through that suffering without recognizing that a lot of times, it's not all times, by the way, 
But a lot of times our suffering is because of our sin. We've caused it. They're trusting in God again. They see who God is. They see who they are in light of God, and they see who God is in light of their sin. That's how you know in verse 16, they got rid of their idols. You know what that means? God wants lordship over every part of your life, everything you are, and everything you do. Sin is really just a battle with God for control. That always leads to idolatry. It always leads to enslavement, which always leads to more idolatry. Repentance is surrendering to God as king in every area of your life, north, south, east, and west. You see that? And that leads to freedom. It's the irony of the gospel. Fourthly, God works through the least likely, the most problematic, the most broken, the most sinful, the most weak people to bring about his wisdom, his brilliance, his beauty, and his power. So the prerequisite to experiencing and seeing his wisdom and his brilliance and his beauty and his power is to see that you are the least likely, the most problematic, the most broken, the most sinful, the weakest person in your community. There are people here in this room that are thinking right now, well, you see, I'm here, but because of my past, because of my family life, because of my mistakes, God could never use me. I've hit rock bottom. How could God use that? Look at the cross. Jesus Christ, humiliated before men, rejected by God on the cross. That is the ultimate abandonment, the ultimate rejection, the ultimate humiliation. And yet, through that brokenness, through that humiliation, through that suffering and that death, we see salvation, new life, wisdom, power. You see that? There are people here who say, because of my past, God could never use me. And you're wrong. You know why? Look at Jephthah, rejected by everyone but God. Rejected by his whole family, but God. You know what that means? That if you're in that place, rock bottom, rejected, problematic, an outlaw, maybe, God could be prepping you. He could be preparing you, incubating you through your past, incubating you through your mistakes to build character and compassion. You're going to be less self-absorbed. You're going to be much more resilient in the face of adversity and trial and suffering. These are powerful tools, powerful tools to do God's work in a very, very dangerous and broken world. In fact, I'm going to say, I'm going to go one step further. God often does great work through non-believers, non-Christians, and even really, really broken Christians because he uses you not despite your weakness and sin and brokenness, but through your weakness and sin and brokenness. So if you come, if you come here, the greatest posture that you can hold is not your status, not your degrees, not your doctrines. The greatest status that you can hold is not your, uh, I don't know, conservative or liberal leanings. 
The greatest thing that you can, the greatest posture that you can hold is not your knowledge of the Bible or the ways that you served or your talents or your gifts. The greatest posture that you can hold is you come broken and weak, problematic, the least likely. You will always be surprised by the grace of God in your life. God will use the least likely people in this church as well. We've seen it. If you think about the people who bring new life into our community, into this body, it's not the people who are most churched, who are best leaders, who are the ones who memorize scripture the best. It's the ones who are getting new life in that, that, that incubating place where they are, where God is working in them, and the word of God is speaking intimately and thoroughly to him in a really, really, it's, what is Christianity? Is Christianity just a collection of serving and doing things to earn our way up up to God's favor? No. You know what Christianity is? You know what real faith is? It's, on one hand, a rational truth, but it's a deep experience, a personal experience of a rational truth. And when that brings, and you know the fruit of that is new life. When you're experiencing new life, there's fruit. We see it. That's what brings new life into a community. You see that? Here, God uses Jephthah, a poor person with a poor pedigree, rejected by his own family. He's friendless, familyless in a, in a culture that values family as the highest, you know, currency that you can have for status. So he was nothing. He was an outlaw. And yet he becomes a hero, a leader, and a judge. We are so obsessed with the externals about a person. Stop measuring people based on their looks or their earning power or their intelligence or your family background. Do you think any of those things is going to sustain a good family life tomorrow? Think even logically. That's not even about wisdom. That's just intelligence. Do you think because a person makes good money that translates into good fatherhood? That's not wisdom. That's just intelligence. And yet we're so obsessed with what our neighbors are obsessed with. And then we wonder, how did I get into this? We wonder, how, how did life become so broken? It was so much simpler. Lastly, God redeems even the most regrettable decisions and vows and mistakes that we've made. In the Garden of Eden, the first lie, God, said, uh, God tells Eve and Adam, Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit of this tree. You do everything, but don't eat the fruit from this tree. But then the serpent, the devil, comes. He tempts Eve. He says, well, you're going to be like God. He's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so Eve, she looks at the fruit, and it's pleasing to the eye. It looks useful, and she says, she's thinking, why would God, if he really cared for me, why can't I just do this? Why can't I just have this? I mean, if he really cared for me, why would this be wrong? Why would God withhold this good thing from me? It must be because he doesn't know everything. It must be because he's not all wise. That's the lie, you see? What about you? Are you still fighting God for control? Still believing the lie that only you know what's best for you? How do you have victory over the lies? How do you have victory over idolatry? You've got to rely on God's word. 
the word of God, the truth of God. That's what makes you mature, you see? Because where does scripture point? The Israelites, they looked to a poor, rejected warrior who won the victory for God's people, but at the cost of his only child, at the cost of his life. Because it was a foolish vow out of distrust in God. Ah, but there, this disturbing narrative points to an even greater narrative, to a greater judge, an ultimate hero, in a way who redeems the tragedy of this story. It doesn't change the course of the story. Some decisions we make will never, ever change course as a result. And yet, through that brokenness, we see the birth of Christ and Christ as he is born, Christ as he is raised, pretty much on the fringes of society, rejected by his own people. John chapter 1 says, he came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. You see that? This disturbing narrative points to a greater narrative, to a greater judge, a greater hero, who in a way redeems this tragedy. Look to the one who sacrificed his own child, not because of a lie that he believed. God didn't send his son because of a lie that he believed, but because of a lie we believed. You see that? Our sin. Look to the one who sacrificed, not for a lie, but for the whole truth, with truth and for the whole truth, that we are so sinful, only God could save us. We are so sinful that only God could save us. And yet God is so faithful, God is so loving, he was glad to come and save us. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus Christ is in the wilderness, and there Satan is tempting him. The devil is tempting him with lies. And yet not once in his suffering does he ever distrust God. In fact, he doubles down. That's what he, he doubles down on the word of God, and there's victory each time. He wins with truth. That's how you defeat idolatry. You want to defeat a lie? Come at it with truth. All idolatry begins with a lie, a promise that is a lie, the same lie that tempted Eve to distrust God. Satan is not trying to lie, lie speak lies into you to get you to do something bad. That's, that, that's like elementary school stuff. Guys, you guys are post-college. Wake up a little bit. Improve that spiritual acumen. Satan comes at you with lies to get you just to trust God, to walk away from God. Not because God's going to walk away from you, but so that you would reject him. You see that? But notice, God makes a promise. All throughout the Bible, God is represented as a warrior. And God makes a vow. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, upon the curse of sin, He turns to Eve and he says, one day the son of the woman will come. A descendant of Eve will come. And he will crush the head of evil once and for all, forever. But he'll be mortally wounded. It'll come at the cost of his life. That was the promise. You know what that means? Jesus Christ is the true descendant of Eve. God's only son. 
And he passed through the ultimate door of sacrifice, not because of a foolish promise that he made out of distrust in God, but because of a wise promise that spent thousands of years, a faithful vow out of trust in the Father's plan. And so he's at Gethsemane, and he never once says, I lament the act of sacrifice I'm going to make. He never says that. He laments the suffering. He's staring down the abyss. He's looking through the door. He knows what's coming, and he knows it's going to be painful. He's sensing it already. God God is already, in a sense, distancing himself forensically from his own son. And so he's staring down the abyss. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you imagine in that moment that sorrow that Jesus feels and is experiencing? And then on the cross, any father would look at his son. If he's ill, he would want to take his place right there. You don't think God was grieving? Staring at his own son, crucified and dying and wailing out and saying, you've forsaken me. He would, any father will be willing to take the place of his own child. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom and faithfulness to his people, held back. Held back. Any son would look at that kind of abandonment and say, I distrust you now. You don't know what's best for me. And yet Jesus remained faithful on the cross. The author of Hebrews chapter 12 says, it was for joy that he did it. Isaiah chapter 53 says, when Jesus Christ looked out and he saw many people coming to faith, justified in the Father, becoming a son again in the Father's embrace, he was satisfied even in the midst of suffering. You see that? And so on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, Jephthah, he tore his clothes. Jesus Christ, on the, on the cross, he was naked. Jesus, essentially, when he says, I'm forsaken, what he's saying is, I, this is the ultimate misery. This is the ultimate wretchedness. I am as good as dead. I am dead. Why? Not because of his distrust, but because of his trust in the Lord. Not because of a foolish vow, but because of a faithful vow to the Lord. Not because he couldn't break the vow, but because he chose not to break the vow. He was glad to keep it. Why? What would Jesus gain? What could Jesus gain from that? He gained you. Ultimate victory over evil and sin. And that is the power to overcome idolatry. That is the power to overcome our lies with truth. So as Jephthah won the victory because the Spirit of the Lord was on him, Jesus Christ accomplished victory as the Spirit of God departed from him. How do we endure when we are suffering, when we're experiencing trouble, and we are tempted to distrust the Father? That's when, you start, that's when the lies start coming in. And you're so tempted. You're looking at all your neighbors, and they look like they're doing so well. This must be true. You know what Jesus did? Even while he was on the cross, he recited scripture. Psalm 22, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read that psalm, it is a triumphant psalm. It's a victorious psalm. He trusted the Father all the way to death. That is the power to defeat the lies. If you just go with the word, you'll fail every time. But if you look to the one who followed perfectly, obeyed perfectly, was faithful to the end, to the point of death, who suffered the ultimate suffering, the ultimate sacrifice, so that every time you experience trouble or suffering, it's a mini-sacrifice. Maybe it's a mini-temptation. 
but nothing like what Jesus endured for your sake. And when we see that he did it fully for the ultimate victory, then those many victories can come too. You see that? When you look to the cross, there's power, victory, embrace, reconciliation, approval, intimacy, what you've been looking for all your life. There's richness and wealth, goodness. Look to the greater Jephthah, the father who sacrificed his own son so that the victory would be ours. Look to the greater child of the father, Jephthah's daughter, remarkable, sad, and yet obeys. But Jesus Christ looks to the father with wisdom, offers himself as a righteous sacrifice. Make that your truth. He did that for his people. Let that become your reality beneath all the, then all your troubles and the brokenness and the sin. You didn't shed any blood for it. You're not the one that has to be sacrificed. You're not going to experience ultimate ruin because that promise to ruin Jesus is what remakes you. That's what redeems the story of Jephthah. That's why it's in the Bible. It's also why we're teaching this series. It's a painful series. We're walking through all those difficult passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are disturbing. But we see so much of God's faithfulness and love and Christ's faithfulness and power in the gospel for you. Trust it. Thank you for enduring a lengthier sermon today. There's so much here. Let's pray together as we close.